Well, brothers and sisters, our brother Ron has led us on a series of studies based on the sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And this morning, his theme is the author and finisher of our faith. I ask brother Ron to come forward. Thanks. Thanks, Darren. And uh, good morning, brothers and sisters and young people and uh, the many visitors that have joined us this morning. Um, Obviously, I am going to fail in time to try to recap over, uh, over our studies over the last few days, so I guess those that have just turned up are going to have to bear with us because uh, we have followed through a theme in terms of Jesus' sayings from the cross. Um, we've covered the first four sayings that Jesus spoke from the cross and um, we managed to cram that into three studies. So we're now dealing with the last three sayings which uh, we have around about half an hour to... But we're told that we've got the camp till about five o'clock, so we should be okay. Um, well, actually, what we're going to do is look at really two of the sayings of Christ at the same time in conjunction with each other, and that is the saying, I thirst and it is finished. And, and that, of course, is picked up in John's record in John chapter 19. Now, in John chapter 19, it says in verse 28, after this, and we know, of course, this is actually now at the end of the three hours of darkness. This is the climax of the six hours that Jesus has spent on the cross, from the morning to the evening sacrifice, from 9am to 3pm. And he's coming to the climax of his time on the cross. And as we said, every word of Jesus from the cross was chosen very specially in terms of his work in redeeming others. And after these things, Jesus, knowing now that all things were accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. And they uh, set a vessel full of vinegar and filled a sponge with the vinegar and put it on some hyssop and put it to his mouth. Now, it's rather an unusual event when we consider the power and magnitude of everything that's gone before, when we've seen the power of words such as, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Truly, I say unto thee today, with me you will be in paradise. Um, Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And we saw the power in these words. Now this saying from the cross is, um, well rather interesting, and it it comes at a real climax. It's at the end of these things, when he saw that all these things were to be accomplished, says, I thirst. So there's been lots um, lots of various thoughts upon what Jesus was saying. And, And most of it comes around to the fact that most scholars identify that the word for fulfilled in verse 28 is a very different word that is normally used in the New Testament about Scripture being fulfilled, i.e. that the Scripture being fulfilled, that he was numbered amongst the transgressors. That's, that's a, a common word used for the New Testament for the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. But here, 
the word is actually the, the related to the word that Jesus used when he said it is finished, talios. It means to be complete. A- and it's often said in the, in the form of a recital. And so um, people have suggested that because he started Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And there is a phrase near the end of Psalm 22, where it is finished, the Lord hath done it, and in the Septuagint they're almost exactly the same, that Jesus was reciting the whole psalm, and in order to complete or finish the psalm, he was very thirsty and and said, I thirst. Now I think that's highly likely, and and I can accept that as a uh, reasonable exposition of what Jesus did. But of course, our Lord was always thinking on a far greater plane than what you and I would think on. And the key is, Jesus is saying when he saw that everything concerning him was now accomplished, it was now exactly the right time, he said, now I thirst. Now, remember, initially they had offered him vinegar or wine mixed with gall. And Jesus wouldn't have a, uh, have a bar of it. And there's very good reason for that, of course, because gall was an opiate and, and Jesus wanted to have his senses and, and wouldn't take a drug to dull the pain because he wanted to endure the true sufferings that God had set before him and to drink the cup that God had set before him. And so he refused the vinegar mixed with gall. Not only that, if you look at Jeremiah chapter 23, it actually, well, you can look at it in your own time because we're not, we're going to run out of time, but... God says, the false prophets I will give to drink wine with gall because their words are false. And it's been well suggested that this might have actually been a plot by the Jews to give him wine with gall so that when, they, when he drank it, they could turn around and say, see, he's a false prophet of the Lord. He's not a true prophet because the Lord gave false prophets wine and gall to drink. So he refused that initial one. But now, right near the end, when all things are accomplished... He, he requests to have something to drink and not just anything to drink. Well, let's see if we can open this up and look a little closer and to see what might be in our Lord's mind at this time. Let's have a look at Luke chapter 22. Let's remind ourselves because we looked at this the other day. Jesus came to the end of his ministry and he knew that one thing was yet to be accomplished. And he says in Luke chapter 22, verse 37, For I say unto you that this that is written about me must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors for the things concerning me to have an end. So what he says, there's there's one prophecy, which of course is Isaiah 53. He was numbered amongst the transgressors. The one prophecy that needs to be fulfilled, the one critical prophecy needing to be fulfilled, is that Jesus is numbered amongst the transgressors. That's the one for these things to have an end. Now that's the very same word that Jesus uses when he said on the cross, it is finished. It is at an end. 
So there is a link between the words of John and what Jesus is saying here to the disciples. For it to be in an end, I must be numbered with the transgressors. Well, where does that all come from? Well, it comes from the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, which we should all be familiar with. Daniel chapter 9. In verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins. And then as we go on at verse 27, uh, verse 26, it talks about Messiah the Prince being cut off, not for himself, but the Prince in verse 24, shall come and confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause sacrifice and oblation to come to an end, to come to a finish. This is what the the word is talking about in the 70 weeks prophecy. To make an end, to bring in a new covenant, to make an end of an old covenant. And if you look again, just follow this reasoning with me, because I'm sure we can put it together. If you come to Colossians chapter 2. This is what's running through the Lord's mind. To make an end of transgression. To finish it. To make oblation to cease. And in Colossians chapter 2 verse 14. Or verse 13 for connection. He says, And you were dead in your sins. And the uncircumcision of your flesh. He, Jesus, has quickened together with him. Or he, God, has quickened together with Jesus. Sorry, Having forgiven your trespasses. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances which is against us, which was contrary to us, and he took it out of the way and he nailed it to the cross. He took out the handwriting, literally the word is the idea of calligraphy, the handwriting of ordinances, which um, is like the... the, uh, What's the word? I've lost it in the Greek. It's um, oh, a very common word we use. <laughs> Sorry, I've got a blank. Does anybody know? Uh, no, I don't think it is, actually. Um, pardon? Dogma. That's the one I was trying to think of. It's the word dogma. <laughs> he took away, like we get the word dogma, to be emphatic. Dogma, that's what the law was like. And, and the word we use for dogma comes from this word ordinances. He took away the, the written dogma and he nailed it to a cross. And he put an end to it, freeing us, freeing us from the curses that were under the law. Now Jesus said at that point, in order that the scripture might be finished, to be made an end of, said, I thirst. In order to do this, I thirst. Now this phrase in Colossians chapter 2 is really interesting. Because it uses the phrase blotting out 
the handwritten ordinances, the dogma, blotting out the curses. Does anybody know where that comes from? Does anybody know under the law where the concept of blotting out a curse came from? It's only really found in one place under the law of Moses. It's in Numbers chapter 5. And I think this is incredibly powerful. Come back to Numbers chapter 5. And it's the story of the jealous husband. The trial of jealousy. And in Numbers chapter 5, when a husband was suspicious that his wife was unfaithful, he was able to bring her to a trial before the high priest. And what the high priest would do was he would take that woman to the tabernacle, to the door of the tabernacle, and he would uncover her head. And it was as though she was made naked and bare before God. He would uncover her head. And then he would take holy water and water from, uh, and, and dust from the dirt and he would mix them together and he would make bitter water. And then he would write down a list of cursings that if this woman was unfaithful would come upon her. They included the fact that her belly should swell and her thigh would be infected and all these bad things would happen to her if she was unfaithful. So he mixed this water and he wrote down these curses and then he grabbed a sponge and he dipped this bitter water onto the curses and he made her drink them. And he blotted out the curses off the paper and he made her drink the curses with the water. So he blotted out the physical curse and made her drink it. And she absorbed the written curse with the bitter water. If she was guilty, well, all of those curses would come upon her. All the effects of those curses would come upon her. But if she was innocent, none of those curses would come upon her. In fact, it says to her, uh, it says, verse 27, And when he hath made her to drink the water, when it shall come to pass that if she have defiled and done a trespass against her husband, that water that causeth the curse shall enter into her and become bitter, and her belly shall swell, and her thigh shall rot, and the woman shall be a curse among the people. It was horrible. But, and if the woman be not defiled, but be clean, she shall be free, and she shall conceive and have children. She shall be free and shall conceive. Now, our reading today was Psalm 51, and I didn't know that this morning. But when David picks up in Psalm 51, he is picking up this very same law about the jealous husband, the trial of jealousy. And in Psalm 51, David says this. He says, Lord... Have mercy upon me according to your loving kindness and according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. And it's the same word, to blot it out, to wipe it out. Now the only time you could ever blot out a curse was under that law of trial. But you know what? If David was 
to be put under that test and under that trial, what would have happened? He would have been guilty, wouldn't he? There was no innocence. He was guilty of adultery. He was guilty of murder. And he was guilty of the condemnation that was under the law. He was guilty of death. So how can he ask God to block out? How can he ask God to take away the curse when he's guilty of it? See, David trusted in the fact that God would provide a way, provide a means that would one day take away the curse. But the only way that would happen was if a man could be put under a trial and an intense trial to see if there was any iniquity in him, to see if any of these curses were deserved upon him and to find that this man was wholly righteous and wholly true and then that man will be set free and he will see his seed and he will preserve the generation following. And David lay in the grave awaiting that man, condemned in his sins unless Jesus Christ could fulfill the principle of this covenant. And as Jesus hung there on a cross, numbered with the transgression, he was saying, hang on, David, I'll free you. Hang on, Abraham, I'll free you. They're all under the curse of the law. They're all guilty. And there was no way God could ever blot out that transgression until a righteous man came, uh, came along. And as Jesus hung there on the cross, and when he saw, now that he'd been numbered with the transgressors, and all things were accomplished, and he had done it, he turned around and he said, I thirst. And you know what they did? They ran and grabbed vinegar, which is bitter wine. They got vinegar with bitter wine and then they grabbed hyssop, which is a cleaning agent. And David says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Blot out my transgressions before me. And they grabbed hyssop, they dipped it in the vinegar and they gave it to Jesus and he drank. And then he says, it's done, it's finished, it's hung on the cross, it's over. The curse is finished forever. And he finished his father's will. It wasn't about completing a psalm. It was about putting to death. It was finished. It was done. For you and me. He took that into himself. He was examined by God under the most intense trial and he was found to be perfect. And every man and woman that had tried to serve God hung in hope upon the righteousness of that man. No wonder brothers and sisters, at that point, the earth began to rumble and the ground began to shake and Jesus had said, it is finished. And Matthew says, when he had cried this with a loud voice, and that's how we know the order of this, it is done as the culmination of triumph. It's the end of the curse of the law. And Matthew says, when he cried with a loud voice, he breathed his last and said, Father, Into my hands I commit my spirit. And then he died. And at that moment, at that moment, of course, the earth shook. And at that very moment, they were there to kill the Passover lamb. But of course, Daniel said he's going to cause oblation to cease. He's going to put an end to the sacrifice. Everything was unto Jesus. And as they were about to offer the Passover lamb, 
3 p.m. in the afternoon when the first lambs were being killed. And as Caiaphas, the high priest, had pranced into that temple to officiate in the holy place and stood there before the temple in the holy place, the ground began to shake and, and this veil, which was 20 cubits by 20 cubits, it took 300 priests to wash this veil. It was a handbreadth thick. This veil just began to tear from top to bottom. And the noise would have been deafening. And it was torn apart and the way straight into the most holy place was made clear. Caiaphas had stood there only six hours earlier and had grabbed his coat, his, his garments, and had torn them in front of the Son of God and said, this is blasphemy. And now he stood before the God of the universe, before the most holy place itself, and God took his garments and tore them in front of Caiaphas, that priest, and said, this is blasphemy, and it's finished. It's done. It's over. And a new covenant was instituted in that moment. In that moment of time, a new covenant in Christ and a new way. Do you know, of course, the garments of the priest, they were never meant to rend. It's actually specifically said in the law that the ephod, which was an ephod of blue in Exodus 20, 28, was made of one piece and it was made with a harbinger and stitching so that it could carry the Urim and Thummim, but also so that it could never be rent. It was never meant to be rent. And of course, of Jesus' garments, it says they took his garments and it was a seamless garment. And when they saw that they couldn't rend it, they cast lots over who was it going to be. There was the true high priest, brothers and sisters. There was the seamless garment, the whole man, And the ephod, of course, was completely blue. You know, people wore a ribbon of blue on their their coats, which distinguished the righteousness of God. But the true high priest wore a seamless garment which was completely blue. This is what distinguished our Lord as our high priest. This is what differentiated him from every man, woman and child that's ever been, was his righteousness and his holiness. And so it was, brothers and sisters, that the curse was disannulled and the veil was rent. Do you know the impact of those seven sayings that Jesus said from the cross were profound for the disciples later and for the apostles that should follow in his footsteps. Remember, of course, what Stephen said in Acts chapter 7. In his dying words, Stephen made recollection of the first and last of Jesus' sayings. Verse 59, And as they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The last saying. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. That's the first saying. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Stephen's words encapsulated everything that Jesus said from the cross. His first and last saying. They made a profound impact upon the apostles. None so more than the apostle Paul. You know, the apostle Paul of Christ, uh, of course, was Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And Paul said that God filled up 
the sufferings of Jesus in him, in him personally. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, of course, these are Paul's last words. He's on death row. He's incarcerated in Rome under Nero and he's awaiting execution. What started off as a reasonably good incarceration where he had lots of freedom and people came and visited him and, came, and, and, and could commune with him had ended in a time where it was very difficult for any follower of Paul to be anywhere near Rome. Any of the Christians would have found themselves suffering if they might go to Rome to visit Paul. In fact, it's been well said that Onesiphorus in the first part of this book may well have lost his life because of his service to Paul, because Paul pays tribute to the household of Onesiphorus, who, who was prepared to give himself to the service of Paul. So any association with Paul was very difficult. So Second Timothy chapter 4 of Paul's last words. Do you know, all seven, all seven of the last sayings of Christ are in this chapter. This is the impact that Christ's words had on the Apostle Paul. All seven of Christ's words are found in this last chapter. And, and the power and poignancy behind them. His first saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, is found in verse 16. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook thee. I pray, God, that it might not be laid to their charge. There's Paul's statement. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And of course he echoed the very words of Stephen in his death. Lay not this, their sin to their charge. His second statement from the cross, an incredible statement of hope. With me, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Paul says in verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, that was the promise to the thief on the cross. A crown of righteousness away from the guilt of sin. Away from his transgression. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not only to me, but to all them that love his appearing. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. That's the thief on the cross, isn't it? That's exactly the thief on the cross. Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. Paul's last words to his nearest and dearest disciple to make reconciliation with his mother and to care for her, a statement of love. Look at Paul's words here, verse 11. Only Luke is with me, Timothy. Timothy, he says, take Mark. Go and take Mark with you and bring him with me because he's profitable for the ministry. Remember what happened between Paul and Mark and the fallout? This is Paul's statement of love. Go and take Mark with you and bring him to me because he's profitable for the ministry. And just like Jesus said to John, Behold thy mother, and she became a disciple from that moment forward. So Paul in his last words is telling Timothy, Go and take Mark because he's profitable for the ministry. His statement of trust, as we said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, was an incredible statement of trust. Look at Paul's statement of trust in chapter 4, verse 18. The Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom. 
That's a statement of trust. He even says, of course, that the Lord stood by him. Verse 17, notwithstanding, every man forsake him, notwithstanding, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. And as we said, the words of Psalm 22 came at the end of what we believe was the epiphany of the Lord coming down and strengthening Jesus on the cross. Notwithstanding at my trial, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. His desire, I thirst, I desire. Paul tells Timothy, he says, when you come, he says, bring the cloak, bring the books, but bring the parchments, especially the parchments. It was an unquenchable thirst that Paul had, even on death row. Bring the parchments, Paul, for his hunger and thirst after the righteousness of God. And then, of course, it is finished, it is done, and into thy hands I commit my spirit. And Paul says, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. It is done. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Verse 6, for now I am ready to be offered. There was the sacrifice which was going up to his father. For now I am ready to be offered. And Paul picks up all seven of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ because it was the epitome of his life. Brothers and sisters, as we come to partake of bread and wine and we see the power of that sermon from the cross, that's what it was. It was a sermon from the cross for you and me. 38 words, that's all there were. 38 words in Greek which changed the lives of millions of people. A prayer that changed the world. He converted a murderer right next to him, a man guilty of murder. And along with that man guilty of murder was other people in the grave, like David, that looked for the time when somebody would come and blot out his transgressions and would make him clean with hyssop. 38 words from the cross to fulfil the covenant, to make an end of transgression. And all we have to do is follow the formula. Forgiveness, hope, love, desire, triumph, dedication. It's our commitment towards our Father. May it be, brothers and sisters, that you and I will share in that time when our Lord returns, when we can be with Him in the kingdom and share the beauty and the glory of having our guilt and our transgression done away with.